We're celebrating a decade of in-depth, looking back at how the show has become what it is today. This time, roles are reversed. I'm in the hot seat while executive producer Ashton Edwards asks the tough questions. From almost canceling the show to a party at the Playboy Mansion, we talk about it all right here on the In-Depth with Graham Bensinger podcast. What did you want to be when you grew up? I first wanted to be a baseball player, and then I wanted to be a lawyer, and then I wanted to be what I'm doing now. Uh, I used to be one of these kids who'd run down to the ballpark in St. Louis where Bush Stadium is and the Cardinals baseball players played to wait for players to get their autographs. And I started doing that in elementary school. After a while of doing that, I had created a baseball card store on the internet where I sold packs of cards through eBay. I also started selling autographs that I was getting. Um, And after a while of doing that, I, I was, you know, this is elementary school and this is fifth grade through eighth grade. Uh, I had built this small little baseball card and memorabilia business on the internet where I remember I'd come home from school and I would package up 20, 30 boxes of stuff that people had bought from me online and go to the store and ship them out. Um, and so kept doing that, was making a little bit of money. Um, but what I realized was after I kept going to the ballpark was I don't really like getting autographs. I just like meeting the players. I thought that was kind of cool. So I tried to think of a way to get more opportunity for doing that. I thought, well, maybe I just tell people I have a radio show on the internet. Uh, So went to the local library, looked up home addresses for a bunch of retired baseball players and Hall of Famers came up with a paragraph letter that I then sent snail mail to these players, and uh, that was how it started. I I mean, I I, I was 14 at the time. That was almost 20 years ago. Uh, 20 years ago, that's what, 2000? So there weren't the same resources or the speed on, you know, the internet then, and I remember I got uh, four responses, Ernie Banks, Hall of Famer, Bob Feller, Hall of Famer, Will Clark, who had just guided the Cardinals to a playoff run, and Tim McCarver. Uh, And they just called my parents' house. My mom or dad would answer and yell back to me and say, so-and-so's on the phone. And then that birthed this internet radio show. Let's talk about O.J. Simpson. How did you get that interview as such a young person? So, you know, it's never as easy as somebody makes it out to be. I called them and called them and emailed them and called them again. And fast forward a year and a half later after I'd been calling and emailing him for twice a week that entire time, I get a call one day saying, OJ's coming to St. Louis to do a private autograph signing. If you can be here at this date and time, he'll sit down with you for an interview. So. Uh, end up, uh, it was middle of the day, middle of the school day, Um, I had my mom write me a note excusing me, left school, drove to this hotel room and interviewed him for my radio show and at the last minute I'm like, man, I'm interviewing OJ Simpson, I should at least set up a little video camera, so just set up a handheld video camera, uh, 
terrible lighting, horrible production quality, but Good Morning America ends up then wanting it and flies me out to be interviewed by Dan Diane Sawyer on the GMA couch, and then that got more media attention because it's a 16-year-old interviewing O.J. Simpson about you know hot topics and that sort of thing, and then that started creating more opportunities from there. But so O.J. would just you know reach out to me a, a, a lot, and so we talk on the phone weekly or every couple weeks. Uh, I watched the Super Bowl with him before. I went to Buffalo Bills games with him. He picked me up at the airport when I flew to uh, Miami for vacation. Um, it was an acquaintance and I think there was very much um, shared benefit in the relationship because I was doing media about the interview about him and he appreciated what I was saying and I wanted the access but you know he has fascinating stories he's golfed with every president back to Nixon he's nice as can be uh, you know it doesn't matter who comes up to him he is you know affable charismatic engaging uh, but obviously he has some issues in, in his past. So that was, O.J. Simpson was my first interview that got a lot of exposure and the first opportunity I had to really engage on a personal level with somebody of significant stature. Terrell Owens, he was a big part of your early career. So I first met T.O. when I was in high school hosting an internet radio show, Super Bowl week in San Diego. I had got invited out there by the Roger Hedgecock Show, which is a host that occasionally would fill in for Rush Limbaugh, hosts a very popular San Diego radio show, was a former mayor. And so I'm out there going to events, interviewing people for this radio show, and Terrell was participating in a celebrity basketball game. So go up, introduce myself to him after the game. That led to him occasionally coming on my internet radio show. Interestingly, the year before we did that interview, the day before the Super Bowl that he was playing in, he called into my radio show. And at the time, he was arguably the biggest player in the NFL. Um, so you know, he just, he went out of his way to be nice to me. I think just appreciated that I was a young kid working hard and respected kind of the ambition and the novelty of my uh, situation. Uh, so fast forward a year later, I'm now doing freelance one-off TV pieces for ESPN. This is after the O.J. Simpson interview. Um, ESPN gave me some opportunity because they were interested in the access that I was getting. Um, back up momentarily, I think I was really lucky because early on I recognized if I wanted some of these bigger opportunities that may not typically be afforded people until a little later on in their career, then I had to bring something unique to the table and for me that was access. So I made a point of 
early on, getting out to as many events as I could, meeting the agents, players, managers, publicists, et cetera, that create that access. So I was very conscious of the fact that I was getting these opportunities from notable media outlets because of access that I could bring. So I pitched to ESPN doing an hour-long sit-down interview with T.O. at his home in New Jersey. Uh, this is at the height of his controversial relationship with the Philadelphia Eagles. He wasn't talking to anybody in the media at the time because of his fractured relationship with the team. Uh, I was in college at Syracuse at the time, four-hour drive from Philadelphia, drove there one Sunday to cover the Eagles game. Uh, after the game, i just go up to him in the locker room and explain to him what I'd like to do. He agreed to do it, and then during the interview, he goes off on Donovan McNabb and the Eagles organization, uh, called them classless, said that, you know, if McNabb was not the starting quarterback and if Brett Favre was, that the Eagles would likely be undefeated at the time. Uh, and admittedly, without question when he was saying it, I could not believe the comments he was making. And I remember after the interview, I'm driving with the producer and crew to feed it via satellite to ESPN. And I remember just being shocked by what he said. And the producer and the rest of the crew, they didn't think anything of it. They just didn't think it was that newsworthy. We feed it to ESPN via satellite, and a half hour later, it is leading SportsCenter. Um, I just remember, I have goosebumps now. Um, I, you, you know, completely upended my life because over the course of two days, we did it on a Thursday night. First thing Friday morning, he is, and this at the time is arguably the biggest player in the NFL. First thing Friday morning, he holds a press conference to the gathered media issuing a statement apologizing for his interview the night before with Graham Bensinger. You know, this, this like college freshman that he did an interview with, the next day he is suspended by the team for the rest of the season cost him millions of dollars. And while, you know, I was actually when, I remember I was hosting, it was a Saturday, I was hosting my local Syracuse radio show at the time because I was, you know, in, in college um, and found out that happened and I was devastated because I felt like here's this guy who has been so nice to me who, you know, everybody wants interviews with. He gives very few interviews and has gone out of his way while I was in high school and now in college to just give me the time of day. And now I like royally screwed this guy over. Um, and I was conflicted because I was aware he made the comments, which he, if he didn't know, should have known they were controversial when he made them. Um, I also respected the fact that he was just honest and gave his opinion on whatever question 
you asked him. Um, but I also really struggled with the fact that we did an hour-long interview, covered everything you could want to cover in an hour-long interview from the controversial topics, which were a few minutes of that hour, to racism he'd encountered growing up, to his grandmother having Alzheimer's, etc. And only those few minutes of the most controversial topics were what aired. I understood from a news entity's perspective, there's limited time, you have to air the most newsworthy content. But then I also understood from Terrell's perspective, he's like, why did I sit down with this kid if I'm not going to get a fair shake? And at the time, I made those same comments to USA Today, Los Angeles Times, Philadelphia Inquirer. Um, and next thing I know, ESPN's reaching out to me, very upset, um, because they felt like they're handling this as they would any other interview. And because of the comments I made about the lack of context his remarks were given, they're now getting scrutinized by the media. So I remember the, like the, in the days after that, I was on the uh, Tonight Show with Jay Leno, and I went from LA to being flown to Bristol, Connecticut, to have a day of meetings with every one of the top executives at ESPN, each of whom were asking me to explain the comments that I, I made. And it was a pretty unexpectedly like terrifying you know, experience. That interview was what provided me with the early incentive to figure out how to create a show like this because in those situations, and whether it was the three and a half years I did work for ESPN or the year I worked for NBC Sports, after that, I would do these hour-long interviews with prominent figures, but I never had editorial control over what aired. And more often than not, only 30 seconds or a couple minutes of the most controversial re remarks would air. And it was to no fault of the, the networks. It, it was just as a result of the, the platform that I had with those media outlets. So I thought if there is a way of creating my own show that, you know, a half hour episode where we profile each person for the full episode, that would give us the ability to really fairly tell somebody's story. And if they make a controversial remark, it's given in the context of everything else, uh, you know, with their story. What happened after T.O. was suspended? Um, well, I got, I got death threats for, I got the most, I got a lot of death threats for the O.J. Simpson interview. Um, I mean, you know, people emailing you with your home address and, you know, your parents' names and uh, we had one person um, emailed me what was in my bedroom window at my parents' house. Like, you know, there's, you initially it's kind of comical, right? Because it's like I did this interview and now these people are saying this. It's kind of funny. And then, you know, some of the comments where they start actually saying where you live and that sort of thing gets um, uncomfortably, you know, frightening. But, um, yeah, I mean, with the T.O. interview, yeah, people, I, I don't know, I, 
I don't think, I mean, he was the one that received the criticism for that, not me. I think um, any criticism I got was from the people I was working for, for trying to stick up for Terrell because I felt like if more of that interview aired, context would have been given where it would have been far less likely that he would have been suspended by the team for the rest of the season. Um, however, one thing that did happen, uh, and you know, you go from nobody knowing you at Syracuse, your freshman year of college, all of a sudden you're on all these, you know, national television outlets and uh, you know, The Tonight Show and profiled by Sports Illustrated. And I remember one time I was like running on the treadmill in the gym at Syracuse and you know, they have a bunch of TVs in front of the treadmills and all of a sudden a replay comes on of one of my cable news interviews and I'm on all the TVs in, in the gym, which is like so humiliating. Um, and so, yeah, you just all of a sudden got some recognition, which was um, both fun and un uncomfortable. We had a, a freshman journalism class, had, I don't know, probably a couple hundred people in it. And once a week, you were required to read the newspaper. And once a week, you'd get a pop quiz on uh, stories in the newspaper. And, you know, it's like a five-question quiz, and there'd always be an extra credit question or two. And I remember going through this quiz as we would every week, and then the extra credit question was, which one of your classmates is responsible for getting the best player in the NFL suspended? And I just remember reading that, and then I just break out into this severe sweat because I knew at the end of the quiz, at the front of the class, they go through every one of the questions. Um, and so sure enough, you pass the quizzes forward, and at the and you know they're reading through all the questions and then when they get to the extra credit question every single person in the class turns and looks at me and uh yeah it was so humiliating jay leno had you on his show you know i think when i was a kid i was conscious of the fact that if i could get some media exposure that would create other professional opportunities for me so i was pitching myself to late night shows when I did the interview with T.O., I reconnected with the producers for Leno and Letterman. Um, and it was clear that, you know, Letterman's team wasn't all that interested. And if it was going to happen, it wasn't going to be for a long time and didn't make any progress w with them. So then I went to Leno's people and I said, uh, hey, here's the deal. Um, here's what just happened with me. Uh, with this interview, uh, Letterman really wants to have me on. And I wanted to call you because I've watched Jay Leno my entire life. I've always wanted to be on The Tonight Show, and I'd really like to be on uh, your show. Um, they called me back like an hour later and booked me for the following week just because they thought if they didn't, I was going to be on Letterman. Let's talk about Conan O'Brien. Uh, Conan happened as result of Leno. The Conan producers saw my Leno appearance, thought I handled myself well, told decent stories, and so they said, we'd love to have you on. Uh, and so I ended up going on one year after the Super Bowl, 
And uh, what was, what I remember being different about Conan from Leno was first with Leno, he came into my dressing room before the interview um, and we kind of reviewed some of the questions that he was gonna ask me. And interestingly, if I laughed at a remark he made to one of my comments, he used it when we were out on the couch. If I didn't laugh, it, he didn't end up using it, but it was much less rehearsed. Whereas with Conan, when I got there, uh, they had the responses I gave in the pre-interview typed up for me and handed them to me, you know, basically saying this is what they want me to say when I'm out there. So, you know, that that's a distinction I forever remember. Um, but both were very nice had the opportunity to talk to Leno a little more. I remember I was a big fan of uh, House at the time, which was a Fox show with Hugh Laurie. And Hugh Laurie was the guest before me. And uh, he ended up coming into my dressing room before we both went out. And we talked for a little bit, just the two of us. And that made such a difference to me because I was as nervous as I have ever been in my entire life getting ready to go out on The Tonight Show. What were you like in high school? I don't, you know, I was an above average but not great student. I think my grades were a reflection of the effort I put in. I was required based on the school I went to to do two sports per year, they're, you know, three, whatever, they're called trimesters, right? Are there, yeah, there, there, are three, there are three seasons in the school year. You're required to do two sports for two of the seasons, but because of the media work that I was doing outside of school, I was able to get out of uh, the sports requirements. So after sophomore year of high school, I didn't participate in a sport. I was average in terms of, you know, popularity. Um, and I don't know, I, I very much enjoyed high school. Um, had fun and most of the friends that, <clears throat> most of the friends that I have today are from middle school and high school because I only went to college for a year and a half. Do you think you missed out on the typical college experience? Oh, for sure. I mean, my freshman year, I can count the number of times I went out on one hand because I was traveling all the time for work. And when I was not traveling for work, I was just trying to play catch up in the schoolwork that I was buried beneath. So, but yeah, I can count the number of times on one hand that I went out my freshman year of college. Sophomore year, I was a part-time student, first semester sophomore year, so that allowed for a little more time where I was able to go out. And then after first semester sophomore year, I left. Did you ever get into any trouble with your friends? Any stories your parents don't even know about? Uh, one, <clears throat> so this is our first time, the first time we're all 21, 
and we were doing the like four days leading up to New Year's Eve in Vegas, uh, and then we were all coming back to St. Louis for New Year's Eve. But a few weeks before that, I did this ESPN taping with uh, reality star Kendra Wilkinson, who's also one of Hef's girlfriends, the star of E's Girls Next Door reality show at the time. We did this taping at the Playboy Mansion. And after the taping, um, which was a blast, as you would expect for any 21-year-old kid, after the taping, she's like, you know, we're having this New Year's Eve party at the Playboy Mansion. You should come. And uh, I'm like, you know, I'd love to, but I'm with my, you know, two best buds from high school, uh, you know, in, for New Year's Eve in Vegas, thinking she'd be like, oh, bring them along. Um, and she said, I can give you a plus one. So to one of my buddies, I ended up being the absolute best friend ever. To the other one, in this case, Evan, I think he uh, hated me for a long time after that. We still had our planned trip in Vegas the four days leading up to New Year's Eve, and then he went home as planned, and us two drove to Los Angeles for the Playboy New Year's Eve party. Um, the terrifying part of that was the, like in, I think this was two hours before the party was supposed to start on New Year's Eve, uh, Kendra, who had previously texted me, it was, you know, you can wear whatever you want. Um, I mean, I think for the women, it's, you know, like painted on bikinis or lingerie or nudity. But for guys, she's like, you know, you can wear whatever you want. Um, we found out two hours before that that's actually not the case and we needed tuxes. Well, you know, two hours before the party starts on New Year's Eve, it's not exactly easy to find any place open to get a tux from. So we literally called all over Los Angeles and managed to like get the cell phone for one of the shop owners who, because we like begged him, uh, went back to his shop, opened it up to dress us for the Playboy Mansion New Year's Eve party. Um, so I remember that. We were, you know, 21 year old Midwest kids um, completely out of place. It was very cool to be able to tell people after the fact you went to the Playboy Mansion for New Year's Eve and I'll remember it forever, but it was pretty much us just standing around staring at people not knowing what to do with ourselves. What's the craziest thing that's ever happened during one of your interviews? Probably the motorcycle backflip with Travis Pastrana. So this is second season of the show. Pastrana, one of the top action sports stars ever. At the time, all we were doing then with most people we were interviewing was the sit-down interview and nothing else. But I, I said to his guy, I'm like, you know, is there anything fun outside of the interview chair that I could do with him? Just thinking, all right, that would help him bring more attention to the episode. And he's like, what if Travis puts you on the front of his motorcycle at the MGM Arena in Vegas and does a backflip with you on it? And I laughed thinking he was joking, but to my surprise, he was being dead serious. Um, little did I know at the time he does it with a plant in the crowd, typically, who's like this 90 pound girl. And, you know, I'm a 100 and 
60 pound guy at the time or 180 pound guy at the time who he'd never rehearsed with. And this is on the hard surface. And I'm like, screw it, let's do it. Um, and then the day before the interview, I'm talking to Travis's mom as part of the preparation for the taping. And she's like, you know, I heard you were doing this and you might want to reconsider. And I said, why? She's like, well, Travis was out of town one time and his buddy, who's another action sports star, did the same thing with me on the motorcycle, only we, only we did it into a foam pit, which is where these guys practice their stunts. They flip the bikes into a big foam pit, so if they mess up, they don't get hurt. So this guy, another highly skilled action sports star, did it with Travis's mom into a foam pit. He messed up and she broke her neck. And we weren't doing it into a foam pit, we were doing it onto hard surface at the MGM Arena in Vegas. And uh, fast forward to that day, we'd done the interview, I'm in pads, we're getting ready to do this, and I walk up uh, to Travis, and I walk up on the conversation that his girlfriend at the time's having with him, now his, the, his wife and mother of his kids, and she was like begging him not to do this. And she just thought it was so stupid and can't believe he would do it. And that was, that was when it hit me like, oh, this actually isn't a, a joke. Because up until then, it's like, whatever. You know, if he's comfortable doing this, so am I. When else are you going to have the opportunity to do a motorcycle backflip with one of the world's top action sports stars? Um, but I, I just remember getting very nervous. And there was an ambulance and paramedics on site for it. Uh, my mom was also in Vegas because after it, after that taping, I thought it'd be fun to, you know, like just take my mom out in uh, Vegas to, you know, spa dinner, whatever. So she's um, in the stands, uh, hysterical, uh, you know, thinking I'm going to die. And um, yeah, I just remember there was very specific instruction on what to do how to hold your body because I didn't even have a seat on the motorcycle. I'm sitting on the gas tank and my arms are like this and they wanted to make sure my head was tucked um, because it was likely that I would fall off at some point. But if I fell off when we landed, uh, you know, I think I'd break like a wrist or an ankle or something like that, which in the grand scheme of things wasn't that severe. But if I, fell off at another point, then you risk severe um, injury. And so I, I just remember landing and not getting hurt and being like uncontrollably excited. And I could tell based on Travis's reaction that he was as well, because I think there was genuine concern by a number of people there that it was not going to turn out well. What have you sacrificed for this job? Yeah. Um, so we're in season 10 now. First three seasons, the show aired uh, on television only on cable through regional sports television networks. So Fox Sports Nets at the time, NBC Sports Nets, and the, the channels that air local live sporting events regionally uh, across the U.S. And what I quickly realized with these TV outlets was that outside of the live sporting event product there, 
the channels otherwise get very small ratings. So our show that was airing on these channels was getting really small ratings. And as we were wanting to produce more episodes, go to more interesting places to tape shows, and hopefully me have the chance to make a little money, we had to get the show getting better ratings or more, we needed more viewers. And so it became evident that that was not going to be able to happen on these regional sports television networks who were just basically airing the show as filler programming around their live sports. So I looked at TV ratings and it seemed like the better opportunity for the show was in broadcast syndication, which means ABC, NBC, CBS, and Fox stations around the U.S. There are 210 DMAs around the U.S. Each DMA has their own four affiliates. Uh, so between seasons three and four, I just thought, heck, let's try and hit the road, go to as many of these DMAs as I can, and sign on an affiliate in as many markets as we can. So, you know, we did that. And, you know, it was very much planes, trains, and automobiles for what turned into uh, a, a couple years. But we started off with only a small number of affiliates around the country. Meanwhile, to satisfy the programming obligations for the small number of affiliates that we had, we still had to ramp up episode production. And in order to do that, I went from basically having a staff of nobody to a staff of a handful of people. So my expenses increased dramatically while the money I was getting was still very low. So over the course of year and a half, I went from having had money in my savings from the work I'd done up to that point, the three years of the show, the worked for ESPN and NBC, um, to having entirely depleted my savings. I had maxed out a line of credit from the bank for $400,000 that I have no idea how I even got in the first place. And I was on the other side of broke. And, you know, I always, my, my dad's a, a financial advisor, and I w remember I just, you know, it just really impacted everything in my life at the time because, uh, you know, we're largely funded by ad dollars and sponsor support. I wasn't able to get additional sponsor dollars in. Money is quickly going out and going out more. Uh, had to lay a couple people off, which was horrible because these are people that, you know, I'm a mid 20 year old kid. These are people with husbands or wives or kids or mortgages, all this stuff that put their trust in me. So it's one, just a devastating feeling. And two, you know, when you have a parent who's a financial advisor who you feel like's done everything right in raising you and here you're making financial decisions that could adversely impact not only your life, but in the back of your head, you feel like they aren't going to let you destroy your life. So they're going to try and step in to help. And then it's going to destroy 
you know, their retirement savings and all that. So it was just a really lousy time. I mean, I, I remember I thought about money all day, thought about money in the shower. I thought about money when I went to bed. It just was tough. And the last thing that I had left was uh, my car, which um, still have, uh, the 2010. Um, and I was getting ready to, I was gonna sell that to help with a couple more weeks of uh, payroll. Um, but that, that was it, then it, it was done. Like we were already modeling how we were gonna shut stuff down because that, that, that was it. Like, and then I had to just figure out how to, you know, get out of this insurmountable debt. Uh, and the one thing that could save me was a sponsorship we'd been working on for months. And it was the last chance. Um, and we'd had a number of meetings. And there was this meeting that we had in New York where the implication was that this would be where we'd close the deal and this would save me. Um, and we get in the meeting and the guy, uh, he says, I wanna apologize. Um, I know we were expecting to close today, but I just don't have the budget and it's gonna be maybe six, nine months before you know, we could possibly do anything. And that was it. And I just remember I started hitting him with like question after question, like thinking of this idea and that idea, just trying to do anything to get some money. Um, long story short, he's like, well, perhaps we can, you know, buy one fewer commercial spot on TV and instead shift those dollars to your show. But you'd have to talk to my media agency. We're in New York at the time and they're, they're in Chicago. Um, when do you think you could get there? Like tomorrow morning? Uh, so he, in that meeting, calls the head of his account at the media agency, tees up the meeting for us. We go straight from that meeting to the airport to fly to Chicago, have the meeting, and then uh, a week later we had the deal and we were saved. Once I signed on all the advertisers and you know, just got in through a really grueling couple of years where I thought it was going to be out of business and, and bankrupt. And then I signed on the advertiser that not only allowed us to recoup our losses, but make a little bit of money. Um, wasn't expecting for it to be emotional at all. I remember I was uh, at a, a house with my mom at the time and I went downstairs to uh, tell her and I just burst out crying hysterically. Completely unexpected. Um, and it just, you know, felt really good that, you know, for the first time I felt like I had, you know, achieved something and like I wasn't a failure. What do you like to do outside of work? Attempt to be active. I like hiking and reading <laughs> boring stuff. There are, I believe, 52 or 54 14,000 foot peaks 
in Colorado, and over the years I have done now around 40 of them. They're half day or full day hikes depending on which one. I've always done them over the summer without snow, so I thought I would try and do one with snow in the winter. And uh, yeah, it, it was difficult, uh, you know, high winds, cold temperature, snowshoes, that sort of thing. Um, I have also climbed uh, Kilimanjaro in Africa, which is the uh, highest peak there, one of the seven summits. I've done uh, Rainier, which is in uh, Washington, which is the hardest endurance hike in the lower 48 states. Uh, and so that's always been something that I enjoy, you know, gone hiking in the Patagonia region of Chile, a bunch of hiking in New Zealand and through other travels that I've done have had the good fortune of doing that all over the world. You know, we did uh, uh, Norway and the Lofoten Islands last summer. And so that's something that uh, I, I very much enjoy doing. Are you seeing anyone right now? No. Do you want to get married? Yes. Do you want kids? Yes. When you find the right partner to do that with. I mean, I don't think you can put a timeline on it. If I was in a committed relationship, you know, with the right partner, I'd want to have a family. Where is Graham 10 years down the road? And what does the show look like? I hope it exists. Uh, wider audience, better access, and profiling people not only in sports, but in news, entertainment, and human interest. I'd like to interview a president, ideally a sitting head of state, Michael Jordan, Lance Armstrong, Tiger Woods. There are tons of people that I'd love to profile for this show, many of whom we're actively working on and just have yet to get. Why is the show based in St. Louis? Why haven't you moved to New York or LA closer to the people that you interview? Uh, well, first, the people that we're interviewing are all over the world, certainly all over the country. Uh, I, I think even if you look at the number of people we profiled in those cities, to date, they're limited. Uh, Second, I, I think being on one of the coasts is overrated. I think for what we do, you can be anywhere. And it's also satisfying to feel like that we're in a position where we have a show, while it's still in its infancy relative to where we want it to be, we have a show that travels the globe, has a worldwide audience and is produced from St. Louis, Missouri. If you could do it all over again, what would you change? Um, be nicer. Yeah, I think uh, sometimes I think I have the best of intentions, but I think I also 
have a one-track mind at times with work stuff and even if the intention's there, how I express stuff, whether to people professionally or personally, doesn't always come off in the way it should. And I'm conscious of that, make an effort to change it, but yet still oftentimes there's a lot of room for improvement. Who were your biggest influences in starting the show? There are people whose talent and ability I really, really respect uh, from an interview standpoint. And it's a wide range from Oprah to Howard Stern to Bob Costas to Mike Wallace to even Dan Patrick. Each has a different characteristic that I've always respected and appreciated. I think I have the best family ever. I mean, you know, I have a mom who growing up was there every day to drop me off at school, was there to pick me up, told me I could be literally whatever I wanted to be in life, um, built my confidence so I believed that and would drop whatever she was doing at any time in an instance to be there for me. And you almost don't realize till you get a little older how rare and special that is. Uh, I had a dad who, I mean, to this day, he spends 20 hours a week working on our show for free and he runs his own financial business. Uh, he has always had an active, ongoing, participatory interest in whatever I'm doing. Um, not because he enjoys the work, but just because he wants to be involved with what his kid's doing. Um, like, I am so lucky in that regard. And then, you know, I have a great younger sister, too, who's three years younger than me, um, all of whom I talk to almost on a day-in, day-out basis. Who are the people who helped you most get where you are today? I mean, be my... Well, it'd be a few people, or, or a lot of people. It would be... First, our team, you know, the producers and editors and our, the folks on the business end and marketing and publicity end. And I mean, it's our, our team that we've been lucky to build. Uh, then, uh, you know, just my parents and then our sponsors that actually fund us and give us the ability to do this. There are so many media platforms out there. Everybody is vying for dollars. And we're this small little show in St. Louis, Missouri. So the fact that these 
you know, chief marketers and VPs of marketing and uh, directors at the agencies believe in us enough to not only make commitments to our show, but do so in an ongoing basis is, I mean, means the world to me. And then on top of that, we have all these different distribution partners. So, you know, we air on YouTube and Facebook and, uh, well, we have all these different distribution partners. In addition to airing on YouTube and Facebook, we have international TV partners, ESPN and BT Sport and Fox Sports and Armed Forces Television Service. And then all the ABC, NBC, CBS and Fox stations around the U.S that carry us in the regional sports television networks, these outlets can put any show they want in place of ours and they would be just fine. So the fact that our nearly 200 affiliates around the world um, believe in us enough to continue airing our show also means the world to me. So it's, you know, kind of a, a collective effort. You can't have one without the other, and it's, you know, I think everybody that has made this happen. Advice you have for young people looking to start their own shows? Uh, I, I, I mean, first, there are far better people to get advice from than me. Uh, but, you know, I think it's almost less specific to media and just more comments to any young person in general. If you want to do something, you can do it. You just have to figure out how. And even if people don't believe in you or tell you you can't, as long as you believe in yourself, you can figure it out. So I think you control what you can control, which is Effort in, time investment, self-belief, and making sure you're educated. And as long as you do that and you work hard and stay committed, you're going to be in a really good position to achieve your dreams regardless of what your background is. How do you want to be remembered? Uh, well, okay, hope, aspirationally, how would I like to be remembered? Um, maximized his ability and used his good fortune to do something good in the world. Thanks for listening to the In-Depth with Graham Bensinger podcast. You can also find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Graham Bensinger. And visit GrahamBensinger.com for TV times in your area. Also, don't forget to check out our YouTube channel at youtube.com slash Graham Bensinger for hours of extra content. If you enjoyed this episode, please give us a rating and review on iTunes or wherever else you listen. This has been the In-Depth with Graham Bensinger podcast.